Last week, we celebrated Christ's ascension, which was his coronation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords with all authority in heaven and on earth, even as Jesus himself taught us in the Great Commission. That occurred in the first century, in about 30 A.D., so that the Apostle John, in his opening greeting of the book of Revelation, not not the prophecy part, not the vision part, the greeting part, where he's saying howdy-doody to the churches, he referred then to Jesus in the present tense as three things. Number one, the faithful witness. Number two, the firstborn from the dead. Number three, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Revelation 1.5. Now, obviously, John was not saying that the kings of the earth at that time were willingly bowing to Jesus as king, confessing him as Lord and Savior, and seeking to honor him in all things. Indeed, shortly after his letter was penned and sent to the churches of Asia Minor, Caesar Nero would open the very first official Roman persecution of the Christians. What John was saying is that Christ had, as a matter of objective historical fact, been raised from the dead in new glorified life, ascended into heaven, and sat down on the throne of God with all authority in heaven and on earth. That he had begun his reign. So that all kings and rulers of the earth, along with all peoples everywhere, were now being called upon to repent and turn in faith to Christ, owning him as king and savior and honoring him as Lord in all things. And further, he was saying to us, even as Hebrews 12 teaches us, which we read from just a few minutes ago, that Christ was now sovereignly presiding over history to a certain end, to the end that over the centuries to come, all individuals and every human institution, every marriage, every family, every house of worship, every business, every educational institution, every civic, national, or governmental body would either build its house on the rock of Christ in his word or crumble and wash away in the storms of life because they built their house on the sand, which is anything other than Jesus Christ and his word. Now that's a mouthful, but that's what John was saying when he said that his letter was sent with the blessing of Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. This is exactly why the early church celebrated Christ's ascension immediately, long before it began celebrating his birth. And it's why we celebrated Christ's ascension last Sunday. This Sunday, we celebrate Pentecost, which represents Christ's kingdom's transformative D-Day invasion of this fallen world to liberate the peoples of the earth from the lies and slavery of Satan's shadow kingdom, which rules by the power of sin and death 
and to bring in the world into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. That's exactly how Paul described the Christian conversion of the Gentiles who were living in Colossae. These Gentile converts. He says, the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. That's Paul's description of Christian conversion. Or to use Jesus' parable in Matthew 13.33, Pentecost represents the infusion of Christ's kingdom leaven into this world. The kingdom of heaven, said Jesus, is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, which is a huge amount of bread that will be produced from that. She hid it in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Well, last week we saw that the modern evangelical church, of which we are part, largely has hollowed out the meaning of Christ's ascension. For while it understands the ascension in terms of basic mechanics, it's when Christ went up to heaven and took his, hand, uh, his place at the right hand of the Father, the, lo- the modern evangelical church has largely lost sight of the significance of that event. And the same is true of Pentecost. While virtually every evangelical Christian knows that the day of Pentecost is when the Spirit was poured out upon the church and the church began to preach Christ and to witness to Christ with great effect, so that Pentecost is even often called the birthday of the Christian church, nevertheless, the evangelical church has largely lost sight of the big picture significance of Pentecost as the great transformative D-Day invasion of this fallen world by the kingdom of God. We just read a few minutes ago Peter's conclusion to his Pentecost sermon. Jesus, he said, God has raised up, of which we all are witnesses. And therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, That doesn't raise any eyebrows to us because Lord and Christ, that's just religious speak today. So there's nothing revolutionary or controversial about what Peter was saying. But Peter raised a whole lot of eyebrows in the first century because then his words were really incendiary. They were revolutionary. They could get you killed in a hurry. You see, in that day, Lord, Kyrios in the Greek, was reserved for one person, Caesar. Now, you could have as many gods as you wanted, the more the merrier. But there was only one Lord who governed all of society and all of the public square, and that was Caesar. If you call someone else Lord, 
you were taking your life into your hands. And that's exactly what ended up getting the Christians killed. They would not say Caesar is Lord because Jesus is Lord. The same thing was true of the word gospel. That word, you see, was also already taken. They already had a gospel. The gospel was what was announced throughout the empire whenever a new Caesar was born or had ascended to the throne. So you see, it was related to ascension, but for them it was ascension to the throne of the empire. They had a gospel. It was the gospel of Caesar. Son of God was also problematic, as was the phrase grace and peace. Because Son of God was one of Caesar's titles. And grace and peace is what Caesar supposedly brought to the world through the Roman Empire. All peoples were called upon to call upon the name of Caesar. To trust him as Savior, that is, deliverer, bringer of grace and peace to the world. And so to enjoy the benefits and blessings of the Roman Empire. So you see, in that day, you could not preach the gospel of Jesus as Lord and Savior, bringer of truth and grace and peace to the world without endangering your very life for being a revolutionary. Now that's exactly what Paul and Silas were accused of, just so you know I'm not making this up and I'm not exaggerating. When they came to Thessalonica, a mob dragged them before the authorities. And what was the accusation? These men have turned the world upside down. That's another word for revolution. They've turned the world upside down. And they have come here. They are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Acts 17, 6 and 7. And yet, the irony was that in most every way, the Christians at that time were model, law-abiding citizens of the empire. Pliny the Younger, who was the Roman governor of Bithynia Pontus, wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan seeking to know whether he should continue to hunt down and kill Christians. And he provided a description of the Christians to the emperor. He said they meet on a fixed day, a certain day, before dawn, and they sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as to a God, and they bind themselves to a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, never to deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it, And when this is over, it is their custom to depart and assemble again to partake of a meal comprised of ordinary and innocent food. Now I ask you, could you have a better citizen than these Christians? Would that all citizens of the United States lived up 
to what these few innocent Christians were binding themselves to on a regular basis. If you, if you had a country full of people like that, basically you wouldn't have any crime. It would be a wonderful and an ideal place to live. And so in all those ways, they were ideal, law-abiding Roman citizens. But Trajan told Pliny to keep hunting them down and killing them because they would not say Caesar is Lord. So they were viewed as revolutionaries. But you see, this was a new kind of revolution. It wasn't a revolution like all the ones that the ancient peoples had seen before with one totalitarian empire replacing another, first the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. You see, those were revolutions that didn't change anything. Those were revolutions which kept everything the same. One more totalitarian empire replacing the last one. None of them making any difference at all to what life was like for an ordinary person or family. In fact, when God gave a dream to Emperor Nebuchadnezzar, in which God depicted the ancient empires of the Mediterranean world, God depicted them as a single giant statue of a man made out of metal. Four great empires depicted as one man. Because you see, the only differences between them were superficial. There were four different metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. So some of the empires were a little showier than the others. Some were a little stronger than the others. But they were really the same thing. Just autonomous man, man exalting himself above the throne of God, man playing God, through some form of a totalitarian regime. So one totalitarian empire replacing another, you see, that's not really revolutionary. That's just life as usual in a fallen world. But then Nebuchadnezzar in his dream sees something that truly is revolutionary. He sees a small plain stone. It hasn't been shaped or adorned. It's just, a, it's just a small rock. And it comes flying into the world, and it strikes that great statue of autonomous man on the foot of all places. So at this point, it doesn't seem revolutionary yet. It seems kind of, frankly, ridiculous, because what kind of difference... Could a small stone make to such a giant metal statue, especially since it hits it on the foot and not anywhere vital? But then something truly revolutionary begins to happen. Something truly unique does begin to happen. The stone begins to grow. Because it turns out this stone is alive. It is a living stone. And it keeps growing bigger and bigger over time. And meanwhile, that glorious statue of autonomous man and all of his totalitarian empires, it begins to deteriorate. It begins to break down. It begins to turn from metal 
into chaff. And it begins to blow away in the wind. Until at the end of the dream, there's nothing left of the statue. It's just all blown away. This magnificent statue turns out to have no substance at all. That's why chaff blows away. There's no weightiness. And you have to remember that in the Hebrew, weightiness is the same word for glory. Glory in the Hebrew means heavy, weighty, substantial. And so that statue that looked so weighty and substantial turns out to have no substance whatsoever. It's chaff. The slightest little wind just blows it away. While it turns out that this little stone is heavy, it has weight, it has substance, and so it lasts. And this stone, by this point, by the end of the dream, is a mountain that fills the whole earth. Daniel will later give Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream, Daniel 2.44. In the days of these kings, he's talking about the four ancient Mediterranean empire, in the days of the kings of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now this theme, which God gave in this dream to Nebuchadnezzar, now notice to whom God gave this dream. Daniel was alive at this time. In fact, he was one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, civil servants. And Daniel is one of the most faithful, godly men who has ever lived in history. He's one of the few in the Bible that, I mean, we know he fell short. We know he was a sinner. But we don't have any recorded instance of any kind of a, a, a fall like David fell when he committed adultery and then he killed Bathsheba's husband. That, that kind of thing. We don't have anything like that with Daniel. But God doesn't give this dream to Daniel. He gives it to Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon. God's saying in so many words, here's something you need to understand. You need to understand what's going to be happening in this world. And here it is. So you see that the kingdom of God is not something that is limited to the hearts of believers. It's not limited to the inner walls of the church. It was something that Nebuchadnezzar needed to understand. Because he was going to be called to confess the God who was bringing his kingdom into the world. And Nebuchadnezzar was going to be a tough nut to crack. He was stubborn. He was proud. He was full of himself. He was the very personification of autonomous man, exalting himself above the throne of God, seeking to rule through a totalitarian empire. God would ultimately drive him insane and make him like an ox eating grass on all fours. For a period of seven years. Until God restored his sanity. And actually brought Nebuchadnezzar to, to faith. And Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. Gives the great confession. That every single ruler and authority. 
in the world is called upon to give. He says that God rules in the realm of heaven and over all the earth. And there is no one who can stay God's hand. And there is no one who can demand of God an explanation. There's no one who can stand over God and judge Him and say, what are you doing? He is able to put down those who walk in pride. He is able to exalt those who walk humbly. Nebuchadnezzar confessed faith in this God who rules in this world. So this theme of the kingdom of God coming into the world, very small, apparently insignificant, apparently powerless, apparently presenting no threat whatsoever to the kingdoms of autonomous man, and yet over time growing, gradually, ever growing. It's alive. It's getting larger. It's growing. And then showing all the empires of autonomous man to be nothing. No substance. All profile. No weightiness. This is a theme that the Bible repeats often. In Ezekiel 47, the kingdom of God is depicted as a trickle of water that is coming out from the altar of the temple. In other words, it's flowing from the worship of God's people toward the one true living God. And this little trickle of water is leaking out from the altar and coming out from the temple. Again, what can that possibly do? But then as it flows, it keeps getting deeper and deeper and wider and wider, gradually and gradually, until eventually it is a mighty river that is too big and too deep to ford. And as it flows, everything it touches comes alive. It goes into the ocean, and it converts the ocean from being salty to sweet. Everything it touches comes alive. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, The kingdom is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds. It's so small you can hardly see it. But when it is grown, there's that theme again, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The seed is so small you can hardly see it. What difference could that make? Well, just watch. Because over time it grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes a tree which dominates the entire garden. And the birds come and seek shelter in its branches. Immediately after that, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom is like leaven, a little pinch of leaven, which a woman took and hid, hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, Jesus' statement that the kingdom is like leaven is particularly significant because leaven is directly connected to Pentecost. You see, God commanded his Old Testament people on Pentecost to bake two loaves of bread that were to be comprised of 
of freshly harvest grain. This would have been in the springtime. And so this would have been like a cold weather grain like barley. They're to take the freshly harvest barley and bake it into two loaves of bread. But this bread was specifically to be leavened bread. So these were the first leavened loaves offered to the Lord since the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which took place seven weeks before this. It all started, you see, with Passover, which was in the very first month of Israel's year. So this is how their year essentially began, with the sacrificial death of the Passover lamb, which, of course, stood for the death of Christ on the cross. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. The next day, following the Passover meal, began a week-long feast of unleavened bread, during which the Israelites had to purge all leaven from their midst. Now, you see, that represented repentance. Because leaven in the Bible is also analogized to sin. So Jesus tells the disciples to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. So leaven is used to analogize sin, and leaven is also used to analogize the kingdom of God. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Because sin and the kingdom of God are two living forces. One is evil. One is good. But these are two living things that you cannot control. You can't take sin and stick it in a closet. You can't put it in a certain place and tell it to sit there. It's not gonna. It's gonna move around. It's gonna go everywhere. And it's gonna corrupt and pervert everything it touches. You cannot control it. So is the kingdom of God. It's like leaven. It's not going to behave. It's not going to stay where you put it. It's going to go everywhere. It's going to touch everything. And it's going to make everything alive. So in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the people have to get out all the old leaven. This is repentance. They have to get out all the old leaven from their midst. Then, once the the Feast of Unleavened Bread is going, the very next Sabbath plus one day, which would be the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, was called first fruits. That's when the very first sheaves of the spring barley harvest would just be starting to ripen. So the people were to take the very first ripened sheaf and to bring it before the Lord and wave it before the Lord as an offering. That was a picture of Christ's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Following the day of firstfruits, the people were to count seven weekly Sabbaths. That would be 49 days plus one day, which would again be then the first day of the week. So this would be the 50th day. And Pentecost means 50th. That's exactly what it means. The 50th day. The first day of the week. 
On that 50th day, the people were to present to the Lord two new loaves of bread, which were now to be leavened. But this is new leaven. It's not the old leaven of sin. This is a new, living, powerful principle that has come into the world, and it is the kingdom of God. It is the Holy Spirit who has come into God's people and turned God's people into new loaves of bread. Paul uses this imagery in 1 Corinthians. He refers to the church, the local church, as being loaves of bread, God's loaves. So we are the new leavened loaves by the Holy Spirit, bringing the kingdom power, bringing the power of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ to dwell in us so that we then become the living human kingdom leaven that is to go throughout all the earth and to change everything we touched. So you see why Christ analogizes the kingdom of God to leaven because it's alive and it spreads everywhere and it makes alive, it transforms everything it touches. And you see why Christ analogize not only his kingdom, but also sin to leaven. So you purge out the sin and you bring in the new leaven of the kingdom. If you think in terms of a bread recipe, sin and the kingdom are not like other ingredients. Wheat, oats, other grains, flour, maybe nuts, maybe olives, maybe chocolate chips. All the other ingredients are inert They're just going to sit there. They will stay right where you put them. But not leaven. Leaven is alive and it grows and it multiplies. You put in a single pinch of leaven into a recipe, it's over. It's over. It's going to take some time, but it's just a matter of time. Even so... Everything after the first of advent of Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, which is his coronation, his Pentecost, the pouring out of his kingdom leaven into his people, making them living human leaven. Everything after the first advent is like everything after D-Day in World War II. It's just a matter of pressing home the decisive victory that Christ has already won in his death, resurrection, ascending, ascension. Yes, there are many battles still to fight. So this is triumphant, but it is not triumphalistic. Don't be deceived. It doesn't mean that things are going to be easy for us. There are still many battles to fight. There are still many dangers to face. There are still many hardships to bear. Think about D-Day in World War II. The Battle of the Bulge came after D-Day. In the Battle of the Bulge, that was the major Nazi offensive in which they were trying to penetrate the Allied lines and to take control of the... Uh, of the the harbor at Antwerp 
to split the Allied lines, which would enable them to flank them and basically wipe out all the Allied forces. And it was a complete surprise attack, and the Allies were taken completely by surprise. They were pinned down near Bastogne. It was winter. It was December and into January. It was cold. They were in the snow. They didn't even have their winter gear. They were not properly supplied. They could not get resupplies. They were pinned down in foxholes, holding on, holding on, holding on by a thread. And that, and that's the way it feels in a Christian life at a lot of different times. That's kind of the way it feels in our own day. We're pinned down, we're outgunned, we're taking a lot more lead than what we're given. But it doesn't change the fact that the turning point of the war has already come. D-Day has already come. And their job there at Bastogne is to press home that great victory that had already been won. And they held on. And they ended up being victorious. But if they had formed their entire view of the, of the war based on what they saw from the foxhole near Bastogne, they would have had an extremely pessimistic attitude. They would have been demoralized. They would have given up. You see, God calls us, even in the foxhole when times are tough, to not take our big picture view from the foxhole. Because in the Bible, what he does is he keeps taking us up to the mountaintop and then showing us the whole expanse of history, showing us the entire battlefield of history and showing us the decisive victory has already been won. It cannot be reversed. The kingdom leaven has been poured out within God's people and his people have been poured out within the world. The leaven, the little pinch of leaven has already gone into that humongous bread recipe. And in one sense, it looks like, well, what difference can that make? But in truth, it's over. It's just a matter of time. The question, though, the challenge for us is to be faithful in our time, to be faithful in our time. If we happen to live in one of those times when we're pinned down in the foxholes and that's what's going on, God did not make a mistake when he put, put us to live in this time and in this place. We only have one job, be faithful to him. Be faithful to him because he has won the decisive victory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.